best way to learn Retracing your steps till you know Welcome back to Empowered Former LDS, the podcast. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode six, Cynthia Markey and the heart-healing power of questioning. Now, Cindy is a former Jehovah's Witness, and today you're going to hear her talk about the painful cost that she paid in leaving that religion and the many wonderful things that she has created and is continuing to create as a result of that pain. And this is one of those interviews that reminds me personally why I do this whole podcasting thing in the first place, because I've learned so much from so many people over the years, and there's always so much more to learn. Like this whole thing that Cindy brought up in today's episode about heart math. I'd never heard of heart math. Have you heard of heart math? Do you know what it is? I mean, it's something that like brings balance between the heart and the mind or, well, Here's what Cindy has to say about it. It's really a tool that anyone can use to build personal resilience. And what I mean by that is it helps you learn how to prepare for, respond to, and recover from challenges or stress in your life. Now that sounds like a pretty good tool, doesn't it? And did you know that questions themselves can also be tools that work in similar ways? Like even having the freedom to ask questions, to explore the answers, and then to keep on questioning and keep on exploring. For example, some of the questions that we ask and explore in this episode are, what are neurons? What do they do in my brain? What do they do in my heart? How do any of these neurons impact my daily life? How can I become more aware of what's going on inside and outside of my body? Once I am more aware, can I influence any of these neurons? Could I learn to flex my neurons the way that I flex my muscles? What is self-love? Unconditional love? Is love really actually a real thing that actually exists? What happens when someone becomes a slave to their fears? What happens when someone learns to trust instead of only fear? Is there a difference between shunning and showing tough love? What does it mean to live life on autopilot versus taking more control? I don't know, what do you think? Do you feel any heart healing yet from any of these questions that I just asked? Well, stick around, because maybe by the end of today's episode, you will. And now, with no further ado. All right, I, I want to hear this. What, what, what did you just hear? <laughs> Well, it came across my group about a a quote from, um, what's his name? I want to say Cook. I don't know. I'm going to have to really back this up. But he says it's particularly heartbreaking when former church members leave and speak out against the church. They are Judas. Sometimes it's better just to not engage with Judases. Yeah, I saw that quote this morning, too. So, yeah, I just gave my two cents and it's pretty fiery and... I did not withhold. It's so well, I'm a little bit on fire. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to hear what Cindy has to say about it. Well, it's okay because I'm known as an apostate. So yeah. You know, yeah, I don't know which is worse, Judas or an apostate. Same, same. I don't same, know. same. Yeah. Right. I wear that with pride. 
Yeah. Yeah. I am so excited to talk with Cindy today. Let me get my mic in the right place. Can I introduce this girl? Do Don, it. Are you okay Go. with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Cindy and I met at some um, ex-Jehovah's Witness um, conferences that were um, given by Rodney Allgood, who is our mutual friend. And um, she spoke at his first one. And then I spoke and I just thought, oh, I love her story. She's just so cute. Until I got to know her, I'm like, damn, this woman is amazing. <laughs> she is amazing. She just has a gorgeous story and she fills me with inspiration and We've watched each other in the past couple of years. Uh, Cindy knows me more than my family knows me at this point. And, um, you know, we watched each other go through COVID and have babies and get puppies and, and quit corporate. She's quit corporate America and she's following her passion. And now she's engaged. And I, I think the world of Cindy, I wish she lived closer because her and, uh, her and I could really tear shit up together. So <laughs> I'm so excited you agreed to come on here. This is our first um, non-LDS um, interview, and I just know it's going to be fabulous. So welcome, Cindy. Thank you. I feel so much the same about you, Wendy. You're such an inspiration, and you've given me the strength and courage to follow my path and helped pick me up when you know I stumbled here and there, wasn't sure. And I, too, wish we lived closer to you because... We're just going to have to figure out how to make the East and West merge. That's all we're going to have to do. I'm telling you. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So Cindy, tell us a little bit about your, your experience. Um, just like we, we call it like our three to five minute experience of being, you know, under the influence of indoctrination and kind of our journey out. Yeah. So you know, my story is a little different than yours because I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness and not LDS, Mormon. Um, but I was shocked to find out how similar our religions are, you know, just some little technicalities. So, um, you know, as a child being raised in a narcissistic, mind control, oppressive environment, you know, at the beginning stages, you don't even realize that that's happening. You kind of feel like it's normal for you. Um, so for me, I didn't really realize that I was any different than anyone else until, you know, I got to be go uh, probably going into, I don't know, middle school, you know, junior high. Um, and then the, the differences really started to show and I started to question things and, you know, you're always given the answers to tell people, um, when they question your beliefs or, um, you're told the, the canned answers when you question things. What really changed my mind and what really started to open my mind is when I started working, you know, at the age of like 16 and I had my car and I was driving and some of my peers started asking me questions about why I wasn't allowed to do certain things or why I lived a certain way. And I gave them those canned answers that we always got, but they didn't just accept them like I did. They started questioning me and wanting more detail because the answers just didn't resonate with them. And I never had anybody do that before. And I didn't have those answers. So when so what I, are, what are some of those things? Like, what are the things that they would challenge you on? And what were your answers? There's, I think a lot of our listeners would be curious. 
So as a Jehovah's Witness, we were never allowed to celebrate birthdays or say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, we didn't celebrate holidays, you know, Christmas, Easter, you know, 4th of July, everything that everybody else did and thought nothing of it. I couldn't play sports. I didn't get to hang out with kids who were not other Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and basically the answers that we got were, well, you don't celebrate birthdays or holidays because you don't put anything above Jehovah. Um, and you don't salute the flag or join the military or vote or get involved in any politics because um, you don't answer to men, we answer to God. And so we don't get involved in earthly things. Um, and you can't go to college or at least it, at the time I was going, it was highly discouraged. I can't say it wasn't allowed, but you were strongly urged not to. And if you did, you were considered not appropriate association for those who really followed and towed the line. Um, and we were told that basically there was no point in following that path because Armageddon was coming and you wouldn't need that anyway. And so you should focus on making sure that you're doing everything that you're supposed to do so that when Armageddon comes, you get to survive Armageddon and move into the paradise earth that we get to live in. So everything was focused on giving your gifts back to the church, not pursuing materialistic things, um, being in service to others, and always making sure you were towing the line so that when Armageddon came, you would survive Armageddon. Um, Cindy, so, did, did Armageddon include a pandemic and a virus? It does now. It does now. Okay. <laughs> so are, are, we, are, we go, are we through it? Are we getting closer to that paradise? Well, I think for the fifth time or yeah. more, you know, <laughs> they've, they've said that. Yeah. Um, and it always falls through. But yet there's always a reason why, you know, that, you know, there was more, more light shed on that or, you know, the truth is yet to come or there's a new truth coming or you know, something that doesn't make sense to me now, but I just kind of believed back then. But, yeah. you know, when, when my friends started asking me questions, you know, push back to those things, and I went back to get the answers for them, the answer I got was, well, you're, it's not up to you to question, you should just follow, because that's coming from the governing body who gets that information from God. And that's why you shouldn't be hanging around those kind of people, because they're going to make put seeds of doubt in your head. And you don't want seeds of doubt. That goes right back to that quote that Wendy opened up with, the, the, the Judases stay away from them. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. a trick. <laughs> right. It's, it's interesting how they use the same tactics. So there's something unique about your situation in your family dynamics at this time. What was that with your, with your dad? Well, so my dad was one of the elders in the organization. He uh, became a presiding overseer, which means he was the main one within our local congregation. And there were other elders that served with him. And then there were ministerial servants, which were below the elders. And um, so I had the extra pressure of being the presiding overseer's daughter. And my dad worked at the school that I went to school in. So I, I never got to escape it, you know, and he was always, you know, checking in to see what I was doing and who I was talking to and was I doing the right thing and spending too much time talking to somebody or hanging out with boys because I really shouldn't be doing that, you know, so <laughs> I just, it was like, I felt suffocated, like I could never get away, especially during the time that I started to question 
Um, the turning point for me in high school was when we got a new guidance counselor who also taught psychology, the forbidden class that I took. Um, and I had to maneuver my way around that. Um, you know, by this time, I was about 16 or so, and I really learned how to manipulate situations to get what I wanted without getting in trouble because they teach you how to become a good liar and a good manipulator and how to live a double life so that you could get away with things. Um, and I was like, hey, I, I'm trying to graduate early and I need this elective class and there aren't that many elective classes and I just need to take this class. When in reality, this guy had been mentoring me um, when I was in study hall, I would go see the guidance counselor because I had a lot of questions and I wasn't getting the answers from home. And so I started talking to him. And of course, everybody in the school knew that we were Jehovah's Witnesses because I lived in a town of like 450 people. Um, I had a class of 35 or 38 kids and we were the biggest kid in the, the biggest class in the school. So um, everybody knew everybody in the town and in the school. And the teachers kind of felt sorry for the few families who were Jehovah's Witnesses and they kind of tried to help the kids out as much as they can. And I was a prime candidate because I was questioning and I wanted to hear some things. And in psychology class and in his counseling with me, he was actually teaching me some critical thinking skills that I didn't have before. And he opened up to the door to me to explore other options. Can, can you talk a little bit more about what some of those uh, critical thinking skills were like, especially in high school, as you were introduced to that? Because it, it was a long time for me before I was really introduced to any kind of critical thinking. What what was it that really uh, stuck? <laughs> he gave me the safety net to ask questions. Yeah. He provided a safe environment for me to explore other options without judgment. I wasn't allowed to ask questions or think about other options or even question the way things were. And well, he, he would ask me questions that I didn't, I didn't know. And so I would go and do some research of my own or just ponder, right? And I could come back and banter back and forth with him and not feel like I was going to get in trouble for questioning or thinking differently. Like you weren't going to give him the wrong answer. It was just like what you were working out at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was comfortable with that and kind of created that safe space for you where you were. Yes. That's awesome. Well, and I, I think that's like one of the number one elements of critical thinking is to have permission to think differently than what you've been taught. Right. So that kudos to that guy for providing that environment for you. Well, I think I was probably secretly his experiment too, because he had never been around a <laughs> Jehovah's Witness before. And he, he was, was probably, probably, he was probably thinking, I got to figure out what's going on in that girl's head. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, this is a unique situation for me. So, um, you know, and, and it was kind of funny because when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I, I explored other religions. Um, I, end, I ended up going to a lot of different religions. I lived in the South, so there were a lot of different strange religions that I hadn't heard of before. And um, I experimented with a lot, but I wound up becoming Catholic. Um, at the time, I didn't know I was just going from one you know, frying pan into the other. But 
at the time, I really liked the ceremony and the tradition and the structure. And um, I felt freer in the Catholic Church than I did in the Jehovah's Witness religion. Um, but I remember being so proud of the fact that I left the Jehovah's Witnesses and I was Catholic that I looked up my old guidance counselor. And I called him and I said, hey, just so you know, I, I really left that religion and I'm finding my own path now. And guess what? I'm Catholic. And he went, good Lord, girl, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, my work here is not done. <laughs> Let's talk about this. <laughs> A few years later, I understood what he was talking about. But, right. um, you know, I, I just thought it was free being Catholic. And, um, you know, I hadn't learned about spirituality or how to do, you know, introspection or learn about myself or do the inner work that I learned how to do later. Um, and eventually I left the, the Catholicism as well. And, and now I really don't identify with any organized religion now. I just believe in my you know, higher source and love. I, I believe that everything starts and ends with love. And when you come from a place of love and a place of heart, then you can't go wrong. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have a straight line from A to B just because you're doing that. And there might be curves and hills and valleys and you still are going to hurt sometimes, but it's all information and it's just one step at a time. But when you come from a place of love, compassion, kindness, courage, dignity, or honor, um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that you could do that would harm anyone else or harm yourself when you, when you find that path and really come from that place. And that's where I'm at now because through my journey, I found HeartMath and I'm certified in two of their uh, modalities. And that's where I'm doing my personal work and moving forward and in, in helping others is using the HeartMath and HeartBrain Coherence and, and moving forward from a place of heart and love. I. I I love that. And I don't even know what it is. I, I saw it in your uh, questionnaire that you filled out for us. Could you tell me a little bit like what, what is heart? And I, I wish I could show, oh, I, I think I can show you this. I'm going to share my screen with you. It's funny. Cause I, I use this sometimes with my clients um, when I'm coaching here, we're going to share the screen real quick. Can you see this? Yes. Have you ever seen anything like this before? I have, yes. And, and do you know, could, could you describe it for people who aren't seeing it right now? Sure. It, it's the typical symbol that I've seen for the yin and yang, right? Yeah. And uh, the tree of, it looks kind of like the tree of life coming from the heart, you know, and, and, the, and the, the brain has like little roots, but I guess those are roots for both. But yeah, like nerve endings and then like endings, the vessel yes. systems, uh, circulatory system. Yes. Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's a yin and yang, which symbolizes balance and it's between the heart and the mind, the brain and yes. the heart, Yep. which I'm, I'm guessing that your heart math is something similar to bringing this kind of balance yes. in, in the body. I'd love to hear more about it. Yes. Yeah, so heart math is, first of all, um, it has 25 years plus of scientific research and over 400 peer reviewed articles it's used globally by the US Navy SEALs are the biggest user of their technology, but um, Mayo Clinic has used it, John Hopkins has used it, uh, NASA, um, the Olympics, 
some pro sports people use heart math. Uh, people uh, recovering from heart cardiologists have used it. Um, it. It's really a tool that anyone can use to build personal resilience. And what I mean by that is it helps you learn how to prepare for, respond to, and recover from challenges or stress in your life. Um, they have a new book out um, that I based a lot of my coaching on, and it's in this book called The Heart Math Solution. I don't know if you can see that. Heart Math Solution, there it is. And basically, it helps you access the power of your heart's intelligence so that you can focus, you can be more creative, you can have more emotional clarity, you can lower stress and anxiety, um, it will improve coherence in teams, it will uh, produce better leaders. Um, it, it really can help people in the moment, in real time, um, become coherent with their heart and their brain and send more clear signals from the heart to the brain so that the brain can then send clearer signals to the body so that they can respond. One of the things that they discovered many years ago, it's not a new discovery, but for some reason, we just in the Western world chose not to acknowledge it, but um, there's actually more neurons in your heart than there is in your brain. There's over 40,000 neurons in your heart. And when a fetus develops, it's the heart that develops first, not the, not the brain. So without a brain, how is the heart doing that, right? It has its own brain. And so there's a whole um, neurocardiology study that shows that actually the field around your body from the heart's pumping, you know, creates an electromagnetic field. They can measure this field out to at least three feet. When you measure the field around your brain, it's about one or two inches away from the body. So there's a big indication that the heart sends out more signals and affects yourself and others more so than the brain. So when people think about how the body operates, most people just assume that it's the brain first. But what they have discovered through these scientific studies is actually it all starts in the heart. The heart then sends the signal to the brain. The brain then releases you know, one of 1400 different chemicals that then the rest of your body physiologically responds to. And very simply put, you're either dumping cortisol into your body by using depleting emotions, like stress or anxiety or depression or frustration or anger, or you're, you're creating the DHEA by using feelings and emotions of love, care, compassion, um, dignity, honor, courage. Yeah. Those are replenishing emotions. And when you, when you come from a place of replenishing emotions and you send clearer signals to the brain, then your brain can create cohesiveness with the rest of your body and, and you can have better immune system, you can be more creative, you can have better communication, you just come from a place of compassion and, and love. So you have, you're a better listener, mm -hmm. you're a better team player, you can respond to things. And actually, they have found a way of using their tools and techniques to help you unlearn certain emotions that you have tied to events and replace them with a replenishing emotion yeah. so that you can create new pathways in your brain so that yeah. you can have a higher baseline so that then when challenges do come up throughout the day, 
you can respond in a different way and reduce the amount of stress and anxiety. And the one thing that really helped me so much is in our society where we have to do so much more with less, we have been, been accustomed to certain levels of stress so that it doesn't even feel like we're stressed anymore. We're just, it becomes second nature. Well, what that's actually doing to your body physiologically is the same thing that would happen if you had a coffee cup in front of you that had a bunch of pinholes in it. The coffee is just coming out a little bit at a time, but it's still depleting the coffee out of the cup. Well, once you can sit down and find out what those little ankle biter, slow deplenishing things are and rewire those in your brain, you can raise your baseline of resilience. And start I to love that. start to heal. It's amazing. So this it's it is a breathing technique. However, um, it's not just a breathing technique. Um, and if you've ever listened to Joe Dispenza or Greg Braden, they're mm. big heart math people. And I, that's how I learned about it. And it's the what they have found is that when you focus your attention in the area of the heart. And you start breathing in and out of your heart, which we all know is you using your imagination to right. breathe in and out of your heart, but you're focusing your attention on the heart. Um, so that takes your subconscious to your heart, but you bring in a feeling of a regenerative emotion and you feel that emotion again. So you'll want to um, remember a time where you felt that emotion of care, compassion, kindness, um, dignity, honor, courage, something like that. You want to recall a time where you felt that and you want to relive that feeling as you're breathing in and out of your heart. And you can actually see on a monitor and a device that I have that I sell to my clients so that they can use it. You'll see how your heart and your brain become in coherence by measuring your heart rate variability, which is actually the space between the beats. Mm. And you will see them become very smooth and aligned instead of jagged. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever used those um, uh, brain sensing headbands uh, for meditation that gives you biofeedback? Because that's what not, this sounds a little bit like. Yeah, I have not, but Joe Dispenza is big into that. Yeah. And, I know, just Joe got Dispenza one. Is, he is now, um, <laughs> he is now a heart math person. Yeah. Um, and most of his staff is trained in heart math so they can see it in real time. And I know that heart math has done that. And if you go on to their website, heartmath.org, they have all of the studies, they have all the scientific research, they have little videos they can yeah. show. Um, and yes, they use a lot of that. That's cool. I, I, like, I you just got one. Glenn? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's called a muse S and it's a headband. I can use it for sleeping or for meditation. I've, I've tried it with the sleeping once, but I just love getting that biofeedback on, on my, my meditation. And so combining that with something that measures those intervals between the heart rates and has this heart rate, that's really appealing to me. I'm going to look that up, but it's been so fun to, it, it's almost like playing a video game with my brain where I'm like trying to, to keep like whether it's the sounds of rain or whatever, I'm trying to have it quiet and then trying to make birds chirp. But that's what happens when you're in like a really deep, calm state, focusing on your breathing and stuff. Just getting that immediate feedback. It, it's so, um, uh, really so, empowering. 
So HeartMath has a tool that we use. It's called the Interbalance tool mm. or M-Wave. You can use it on your phone or your computer and you clip one end on your earlobe because your fingertips, your toes, and your earlobe is where you can get the best pulse reading, which mm. I didn't know that, but mm. it is. And so I have a Bluetooth version. I think if I have it here, I'd show it to you. Um, hold on, I'll show it to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's this little device here. Yeah. So one piece goes on your ear like this. And then this is just the Bluetooth thing that you could clip on onto your shirt. And yeah. then you download um, an app on your phone. Right. And so as you start to breathe in and out of your heart and you bring yourself into coherence, you'll actually see on the app how your heart yeah. rate variability is. Yeah. And mine usually, you know, especially if I've had a stressful day or something, um, you'll see it starts out kind of jagged and it'll be like in the red. There's a red bar, a blue bar and a green bar. And you want to be in the green as much as possible. And as I fall into that coherence, you'll see that it will go from red to blue to green. And then you'll kind of stay in that area and, and mm. the waves start to smooth out and it's really kind of cool. And you can over time increase how long you can do that. And then there's different levels that, you know, challenge levels that you can raise in. They have someone on their team that actually worked with NASA Mm. And this doctor said it takes about six to eight weeks of daily practice um, to change a baseline. Yeah. Now that baseline mm. may happen quicker for some or longer for others based on how long they've had trauma or how deep those grooves are that they've got stuck in having a specific emotional response to a situation. Uh, you have to teach yourself how to uh, think about that situation with a different emotion to get a different reaction. So, so when you're working with clients that have had really traumatic exits from this high controlling religion, mm -hmm. are you working with them to try to uh, basically attach new emotions to these old memories, these old programs that are in there so that they yes. would think about their experience differently? Yes. And heart math is just one tool that I use, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things. Um, that I use to help people overcome, you know, Wendy, you, you and I have both used the same analogy before, so it's not going to be new for you, but you know, when you, when you leave a high control religion or narcissistic um, situation, it could be even a narcissistic relationship. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a religion, right? Right. Um, just because you exit the environment doesn't mean that all of the behaviors that you learned immediately go away. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you have to learn how to rethink and you have to learn how to change because you can't stay in the same mindset with the same behaviors in a new situation and still expect different results. Right. Because it's not going to happen that way. And so you have to open your mind to be willing to change and to try new things and to think differently and to have different people around you. And well, and that's what I call that. It's not enough to wake up. You also have to grow up and you've got to clean up before you can really show up. Yes. Um, and there was a time when I would have heard that and I would have thrown up. Right. I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love it. 
<laughs> Maybe you should say that without throwing up. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you caught up. Yeah, I'm, got, no, I'm caught up. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, my motto or the one of the things that I, I try to explain to people is you have to um, know yourself, teach yourself, uh, love yourself and trust yourself in order to change and survive in a new environment that you were taught you wouldn't survive in. And so heart math is just one of the tools that I use to help people learn about themselves and learn to love themselves. And eventually when you teach yourself new things and you become aware of who you are, you can become more grounded in yourself and you become more solid in your beliefs and you can't easily be swayed. So then you learn how to trust yourself once all of that happens, you really truly love yourself. And that is the key because Mm -hmm. without love for yourself, you can't love anyone else. You won't attract love for yourself. That is real. And you will never find keys to happiness because happiness isn't something that happens to you. It is something that you find within yourself. And then it's just a reflection of how you feel inside is what shows up in your life every day. Yeah. So learning how to incorporate all of that into your life. And I'm not going to say it's easy and it takes work, but it doesn't have to take a lot of work and it doesn't have to be hard work. It just has to be a commitment that you're going to have a lifestyle that's different than you had before. You know, don't wake up and listen to the news that's programming you to be in a state of chaos every day or um, frustration or anger or fear. You know, right now it's about fear and control. Um, And you wake up in the morning and you make it a point to think about gratitude and how fortunate you are to have the things that you have in your life. Yeah. And then you do something that feeds your mind positivity and brings you in, you know, coherence with yourself and nature and and the earth and, and your higher self. Um, you just set yourself up for a win. Yeah. You know, before you turn on the news, if you have to, most of us have to at least stay up on current events to some degree in order to, you know, go to work and interact with people. But that doesn't have to be what you feed your mind all day long, every day yeah. of the week. Yeah. And when you watch the news, it's just a repeat of the same thing from one newscaster to the next. So um, you're programming yourself to live in fear and frustration and anger when that's all you feed yourself all day long. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about love and self-love because I, I've been working with uh, been working with a coaching client uh, who has a really hard time with this word love. She, she's suspicious of love. She doesn't really think that love actually exists. She thinks it's just platitudes, words that people say. And she, she kind of, where we left it off, she's like, I, I really need to explore this more to see if love is something that I actually feel or know or can have any kind of relationship with. I'm curious if in, and this is for either one of you, Wendy and Cindy, have, have you encountered any clients like this before? Uh, what and what would you do in a situation like like that where they're they really are just suspicious of love and aren't aren't sure it's actually a thing? So trying to get to self love when you doubt it, and how do you do? Think, what would you, you do know, with that? I, there was a period of time where I didn't have self love. I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. And the only love I experienced was conditional love. There was no you know unconditional love in my life. 
Um, I didn't know that what that was. Um, so I didn't know. I had never experienced it before. You know, I, when I left that religion and my family all shunned me and didn't have anything to do with me anymore, and I was all alone in the world, um, what I thought was love, I found out really wasn't. And so it's a lonely place to be. It's a dark place to be. Um, and then when I started to have relationships with people, and of course, I didn't know how to find that. And I didn't know what I was doing. And I trusted the wrong people. You, I can see where people would um, doubt that love exists, or not even know how to find it within themselves. Because maybe what they've experienced so far isn't real love. Because if the person that they think they're being shown love from, from hasn't found love themselves or hasn't experienced love, then they're not showing them what real love is either. Um, but it is something that you find within yourself when you're quiet mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. enough time that you really learn who you are. And it's something that you just experience over time, the more that you sit in that quiet mm. and you become comfortable with who you are in entirety, which meant for me, I had to embrace what I was running away from. Mm -hmm. I was running away from being a Jehovah's witness and I put it in a drawer and I closed the drawer and I never wanted to talk about it. And I wanted, didn't want to acknowledge it anymore. I wanted to pretend it never existed, but what that was doing is really cutting off a piece of who I was. And you can't really learn to love yourself until you accept all of yourself. Yeah. Cause that Jehovah's it. witness part of yourself, you didn't love, you didn't even want to look at it. Right. right? And yeah. it, I, I thought of it as a piece that was causing me pain mm. and it really wasn't that really wasn't what was causing me pain. It was the emotional attachment to expectations about things that I had, mm. that I had to resolve within myself. And, learn and it was like the, the old, almost like echoes of yes. old emotional trauma that your, your body is still creating in that moment because your memory yes. is attached to those old emotions. Yes. And, and, you know, I, when I look back now, I don't, I don't hate the fact that I was a Jehovah's Witness. Mm. And when I look at it, it was not all bad. I mean, there were things there that I learned that were really valuable tools. I mean, I learned how to stand up for what I believed. Yeah. I learned how to speak up about things. You know, I learned to live a clean life and not have, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink or, or smoke or have, you know, promiscuous sex as a young child. I didn't go stealing things. I didn't do harmful things. Now, did they take some of those things to extremes that I had to find some balance with? Um, because none of those things necessarily are bad when they're done appropriately and, and at the right times in your life. But you have to find that balance. But I learned how to speak in public. I learned how to write things. I learned, um, I learned, learned compassion for people. Now, it wasn't across the board compassion, but I had compassion for people in my, in my own religion. The same religion. <laughs> that we were taken care of. But I mean, there were things that I learned a sense of community and how to take care, you know, of, of myself and others. But I had to find a balance and I had to find the right context. But it made me who I am. So I can't cut off part of who I am just because I didn't like the situation. 
Um, and I had to learn that just because someone is your family doesn't give them the right to mistreat you. It doesn't make it okay for them to shun you. It doesn't make it okay for them to walk all over you. You have to learn to set boundaries. And I, I found out it's okay for me to outgrow those people. Well, talk a, little, talk a little bit about that, Cindy. When, how old were you when you left the church? And what, was, what were the repercussions with your family relationships? And what are they today? So I physically left the family unit when I was 18 um, because I didn't want to be in the religion anymore. My dad was very strict about, you know, this is my house. So if you're here, this is what you're going to do. And if you don't like it, leave. Well, I don't. I don't think he realized I would really leave because <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm out. And I moved. Um, what I did though, was I moved to another state and I lived with some friends of my family that were still Jehovah's witness because I was only 18 years old and I didn't have a network. And so I kind of had a plan that I was going to move far enough away that my family wouldn't really know what I was doing. And I had to have a soft place to land. So my plan was I was going to live with this family that I knew, find a job, and then get my own apartment, which is what I did. So, I mean, it took some time. So I kind of played this game where I still was in when I really wasn't. I was physically in, but I was mentally out. We call that being a PIMO. In the, in the Jehovah's Witnesses world, it's a PIMO. Um, I was physically in, but I was mentally out. And I was sneaking out, doing all kinds of stuff, you know, with other teenagers. Um, and I got my own place. And then I just stopped going. Well, when it became knowledge that I was not following the program and that I was basically leaving, um, I had the elders meet me and tell me that, you know, they were going to disfellowship me um, because of the things that I was doing, which was nothing more than other people my age were doing, but was not acceptable to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, I was like, okay, well, for me, I knew what that meant. That meant that everyone I knew up until that time in my life was going to cut me off and I wouldn't have anything, any contact with them. There would be no emotional or financial support from them it would be like I was dead to them. So I was still kind of trying to wrap my head around that when they told me at that time, now, geez, that's been over 30 years ago. So um, at that time, there was something new out and it was called disassociation. And the difference between disassociation and disfellowshipping is disfellowshipping is an action the church takes against you and disassociation is something you choose to do. You choose to step away from the church. I had never heard of that. And what they said was, you know, if you choose to disassociate yourself, then everyone else is going to have to no longer be around you. We're going to shun you, but your family won't have to. And for me, I was like, wow, look at my I only give a shit about my family. I, I don't really care about everybody else. You know, if I can still have my family, well, I'll do that. Well, that really wasn't exactly true. And I don't know if it was, they didn't understand. I, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that they would flat out lie to me. So I think that they just didn't understand all the ins and outs. Maybe they did lie to me. I don't know. 
I thought I was doing the better thing by uh, disassociating myself. But what I found out very quickly was it didn't really matter because my family was going to shun me too, but it just gave them extra ammunition to now point the finger at me that now it was all my fault that the family was torn apart because I made the decision. So it ended up being a worse decision from that perspective is now they can blame you and now you become an apostate because you've walked away and you've turned your back on Jehovah. And, you know, my mom used that guilt trip all the time. You know, you chose this, you're doing this to the family, you're causing the harm. You're, you're, you're making us shun you. Yeah. So what I, is- I was hurting them, you know, forget about yeah. what was happening to me. You know, I was causing them pain and embarrassment. So so what did, what did your family dynamics, what did, what did your relationship with your family look like for when you were 18 till now? What is, has it been, what does it feel like to be a part of your family? Well, um, I lost, you know, I lost my sister. Um, I don't have any relationship with my parents whatsoever. Um, it was kind of interesting. You know, I had, I had kids and my parents never had anything to do with my children. Um, I got married. They didn't come to my wedding. Um, the last time I really saw my parents at any function was at my grandfather's funeral. And the interesting thing that happened there was there were other Jehovah's witnesses that came to my grandpa's funeral because they knew my grandma and grandpa from my mom and dad. And it was my mom's dad. Um, so they came for my parents and they sat and talked with me and they showed me some compassion. And yet my own, my own parents wouldn't sit and talk with me or show me any compassion or love. And, um, I caught my mom in the hallway coming out of the bathroom and I said, Hey mom, don't you think it's a little weird that the other Jehovah's Witnesses are sitting and talking with me and they're being a little compassionate and you and dad are pretty much ignoring me. And she's like, well, now's not the time to talk about it. I was like, well, is there ever a time that we're going to talk about it? Obviously not. Cause we've never had that, that conversation again, but you know, I, I did ask some of the other um, elders that were there. I'm like, why is it that you can sit here and talk to me and my own dad and mom won't talk to me. And they had no answer for that. You know, it's no answer for that, but. What, what, um, what's your answer now? Why do you think that they would make that choice? Well, you know, my dad is one of many people in all of these religions that are high control um, narcissistic environments is that you always have some extremists right in there. And then you have some liberalists that um, don't always follow the rules. So, you know, my, my parents are more to the extreme side of, of what the organization has. And yet, um, you know, after the funeral, those people still went back to shunning me like I didn't exist anymore. So it was, you know, it's a false compassion and a false sense of, um, knowing or, or caring, but it's just strange. You know, I I'm very lucky that I did have my grandmother and grandfather who never had been Jehovah's witnesses. So when I was about 20, 
Um, I lost my job. I was in a car accident. My car was totaled. I was hurt, had no job. So I moved in with them and, and I give them so much gratitude and I give them so much love because they took me in and I did have some semblance of a family, which a lot of Jehovah's witnesses, when they leave, they don't have that because every single person they know is in the organization and they have to go by themselves. I at least had my grandparents who welcomed me into their home and did their best to remain neutral, um, to still have a relationship with their daughter and yet help me until I got on my feet and became who I am. Um, and bless her heart, my grandmother to this day, she'll be 95 this year. Mm. And uh, she now lives with my parents. So I have lost um, the ability to visit with her. I can talk with her on the phone, but I'm not allowed to come to their house to visit her. Um, and my kids aren't allowed to go to their house and visit her. But, um, but I still talk to her on the phone. So my kids were not raised as Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm very grateful for that. They don't have to know what that's like. Um, but the dynamics of that family are, are broken forever. Um, and I've created my own family. And I think that's what we all have to do is find our own tribe and our own family and find those that are like-minded to help us move along our path. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious from, from what you've learned about neurology and neural pathways, the neurons in the heart, that heart, all, all of that stuff. How, how does that help you understand and accept those choices that your parents have made that are impacting you in this way? So, um, you know, one of the things that I understand about them now that I didn't understand before is, you know, they're just, they really believe it. You know, you really have to believe something like that in order, especially now that I'm a parent, right? There's nothing that I wouldn't do for my children. So they have to really be under the control of that organization and, and live in fear. Um, That's the magic they, word I was looking for, actually, Cindy. They're, they're afraid. They're, yeah. they're living in fear. Um, they're afraid. And they really honestly think they're doing the right thing because yeah. they think that the more they disconnect from me, that it will make me want to come back. Well, actually it's doing the opposite, but in their mind, they're trying to do the right thing to bring me back to the fold. Um, and you know, my, my parents are older now, so, um, they'll probably never leave, uh, that religion. And I've come to terms with that, but the fact that they really believe that and they're living in fear, I kind of understand and can find I, I forgive them mm -hmm. and I forgive them for myself, not yeah. for them. Right? Yeah. I've had to, I've had to forgive them for myself so that I didn't carry around anger and resentment right. and, and guilt. Even, you know, I had to let go of them blaming me yeah. for their pain. I, I, I love that you said this because this is what I wanted to ask you next is, and you just went right into it. I think is, seeing seeing what their commitment to fear or to you know alleviating their fear trying to control their fear like everything that they're trying to do because of this deep fear as, as you look at that and you recognize this is fear driven then 
what does that make you want to do with fears when you feel them and when you have that? And it sounds like you're recognizing, I just need to release that fear because if, if I'm, if I'm acting out in my life based on fear, fear, fear all the time, then I might do to other people, these things that my parents have done to me. And I don't want to do that to my kids. I don't Absolutely. want to do around me. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had, you know, I've had challenges through my life that have made, it's have given me opportunities to practice that a lot, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I am a parent of a child in addiction. And, mm. um, you know, my, my son is an adult now, but he is a, is a person in addiction. Um, and he was sober for many years, and now he is no longer sober. Um, and the toughest thing for me as an ex-Jehovah's Witness, when it comes to um, showing tough love, which is what you have to do with someone in addiction at certain times, you have to show that tough love is distinguishing the difference between shunning yeah. your family member and showing tough love. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, that was a very tough struggle for me. Um, especially early on, um, the first time that he went through his addiction was I was struggling with showing tough love. Because in my mind, that equated to what my parents did to me. Yeah. And so I, I, I imagine you'd also have that. quite a bit of fear for your child. Oh, yes. Yes. And, you know, this is where um, I'm grateful for heart math and for my inner mm. work and understanding people's paths. Yeah. And, you know, um, understanding that there's more to the afterlife than what I was taught, you know, what I believe now, um, it's less painful. I mean, it's still painful to see yeah. your child in addiction, right? Yeah. However, um, understanding that everybody has their path and that there's nothing I can do to change what he's doing and learning how to just accept the present and not putting a lot of emotion toward expectations that I had for what mm -hmm. he should be doing and just allowing that he's living the path that, you know, and, and there's a little, there's a little twist there because everybody has free will, right? So there's your path and then there's free will and there's choices, but I have to let go of all of that and, and stay present and detach from that so that I can not live in fear and guilt or blame yeah. for choices that someone else is making. And to, and to help him the best that I can hopefully see his way back to sobriety. Mm -hmm. um, but that was tough for me. And so what I do a lot of times is work with families of people in addiction because mm -hmm. I've lived it and I'm still living in it and just helping them learn different ways of responding to things and trusting themselves and using a different mindset has really seemed to help the family as well as the person who's recovering from their addiction. I love Beautiful, that. painful, <laughs> messy, gorgeous, yeah. deep, heavy. Yeah. I mean, just knowing who you are and, and um, finding your path doesn't always mean that you're not going to feel emotion. It doesn't mean you're not going to have struggles. So I don't want people to have a false sense of what that means. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's ever, 
it's ever changing and it's always growing. And, um, you know, it's, it's not a destination that it's not achieving a destination or arriving at a destination that makes your life worthy and rich. It's the journey there and experiencing all these things, the highs and the lows. I mean, we're, we're energetic human beings and we have emotion. And so, you know, when we can feel those emotions and recognize the emotions and handle the emotions and learn different responses to those different emotions, that's what life is all about. Yeah. And, you know, look, enjoying the moments. That doesn't mean every moment is going to be fun, but living those emotions and feeling the emotions, that's, that's being human. Yeah. How would you, the theme of our, our podcast is an empowered former LDS. How would you describe empowerment? Oh, empowerment to me means that I get to find out who I am and I get to make the choices for myself. And I don't have to apologize to that for that to anyone. I don't have to explain it to anybody. And it's okay for me to change my mind because what works now may not work later when I have more information or I walk through my path because your path isn't straight. It's not a straight line and you may make curves and you may go backwards for a little while and then you may go up a hill and down a hill and around to the back door. And that's okay because you're running the show. I get to choose for me. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody else and I'm come from a place of love, I'm going to experience what I want to experience for me. I love you know, you, that. You, you mentioned something earlier where you were talking about the, the heart and the mind, and you were talking about cortisol levels that can flood through your body. And to, to me, empowerment also includes, as you're saying, getting to know who I am, you know, like, cause I remember a time when, when I was so cynical and jaded that anybody that would say to me, Oh, I, I want to find out more about who I am. I would just be, Oh, really? You want to find out? You don't know who you are. You know, just like, <laughs> yeah. but like how many people really do know that you are a cortisol machine and you've got a little button that you can push. That's going to either like flood you with this or not flood you with this. And that there's many, many chemicals. That's what we are. We're, we're walking bags of chemicals and we can be empowered. We can empower ourselves on how we, how much of that we flood in or kind of regulate it, how much we're aware sure. of it, how much we're not. And so just, just knowing yourself doing that, that heart mind balance and what kind of inner environment do I want to create for myself, regardless of everything that's going on around me, it's such an important part of empowerment that I'm learning from you right now, Cindy. So yeah, you uh, get to choose, yeah, yeah. you know, human beings get to make choices and you choose how you're going to feel every moment of every day. And I'm not saying it's easy, but the more you learn to make choices from a heart centered approach, the more you're going to live in a state of one of those 1400 DHEA emotions yeah. instead of one of the 1400 cortisol emotions. Now, cortisol is not all bad. You need it hmm. for certain things, but you don't need it all the time, every day, all day long. Yeah. Um, that's counterproductive to your immune system until your, your ability to function um, efficiently. Um, it's a great tool. I've seen it help. Um, I'll tell you very quickly, one of my 
one of my uh, clients was on blood pressure medication and she also suffered social um, anxiety. And she was practiced heart math with me um, a couple of weeks and she called me up and she said, check this out. I dropped my blood pressure points by 10. She, mm. dropped, she was actually able to come off her blood pressure medication after using it for a while. And um, she used heart math in the morning before she went to the farmer's market where her and her husband sold jewelry that they made. And she was actually able to get to the point where she could converse with people at the farmer's market instead of just going there and setting it up. And she would have to take a break. But just practicing heart math changed her stress level and her anxiety levels to the point where she didn't even take melatonin or sleeping medication after, after using it for a while. So when, when you change your lifestyle and you incorporate small little changes in your life where you can choose a heartfelt approach and you choose love over fear, it really changes your life um, physiologically in so many ways. Well, that's why I, I was like, I think fear-based religions promote a disconnection from that my heart-mind connection. They do. And I, I think part of our growing up is, is becoming more aware and in tune of our feelings and our emotions, but also our body. And to realize that we have more power to regulate our body than we even realize it's just kind of operating unconsciously to us without any supervision. <laughs> but the minute we become aware of it, it's almost like, Hey, I can control this and I don't have to feel this way. And I don't have to act this way. And I don't have to, um, be such a, a slave to everything that's going on and a victim to my world around me. I actually can participate with, with it to me that that's, uh, signifies empowerment. And I think I was thinking when you, what you were talking about uh, the happiness is a choice. I've always kind of had a problem with that because I do believe happiness is a choice. We have to choose it first, but what I'm hearing you say is that it's also a skill. It's not just a choice. It's a skill. And when the more you do it, the easier it is. Right. And it starts yep. with that starts with gratitude. I'm, I believe. Yeah. It starts with gratitude. But, you know, I was thinking about what you said, and it's almost like a lot of people are going through life on autopilot and it's time to shut off the autopilot and actually start taking control of our life. I agree. Uh, fly your own plane. Don't yep. let someone else do that. You know, just, you know, cause if, cause if we don't, we're, we're just going to get swept up into what everybody else is doing. And, you know, like Wendy, you, you said something about these fear-based religions and my mind immediately went, there's no such thing as a fear-based religion. This is an idea that we have a reified idea to try to simplify this really complex thing. That's actually a network of many individuals, all of them are making choices to try to alleviate their fear. And they've been told this is the way you do it. And they've been told not to question the, the, this. And so they just do it. And so exactly what you're saying, they're just on automatic. They're just doing what they were said to do. They haven't really learned the value of questioning because they're afraid of it. And um, anyway, I get really passionate about this. Well, and you know, I think, I think to that point, Glenn, 
that's where a lot of people get their frustration and anxiety from is because they've been taught that if they do these specific things, yeah, they're going to be happy. Yeah. Right. Their life will be fulfilled. And so they're checking all those boxes, but they're not happy. Yeah. They're not fulfilled. They're depressed. They're suppressed. Yeah. Right. And, and they don't understand why, right. because they're doing everything they're being told to do. And yet they're not happy. And, and so, so when you've, when you've got somebody in that situation that has been so used to thinking automatically and instead of switching to, to think intentionally, like how, how do you do that? How, how do you get somebody to change? You know, first of all, people have to want to change. Right. Yeah. And, and it's a multifaceted thing. And I generally start with just, can you do one thing for me? Mm. Just one thing every night before you go to bed, write down th- three things you're grateful for. Mm. That is step one of what I start everyone out with is just write three things. And then you grow from there. Because if you can think of three things today, next week, you'll be able to think of at least six. And if be the same three things every night, or does it need to be different things every night? I don't care. As long as you're focusing on gratitude, I don't care what you put there. And for people who struggle, I say, you know, America might be really screwed up right now, but we have a lot to be grateful for in this country. We have clean water. We have homes that we live in. Most people have clothes to wear and, you know, have a means of transportation. We have food to eat. A lot of people don't have those things. I think I listed five things right there, yeah. right? Um, some of us have children. Some of us have um, a pet that we adore. Um, most people have a job or a way of making, you know, money. Um think about those things. I mean, you have friends, you have your health, your breathing. Um, you know, we have a lot that we could be grateful for without digging very deep. Mm. That's just surface stuff. Yeah. Um, but you have to recognize the things that you are grateful for before you can then receive more or even start to love anything. You have to start at a place of gratitude. So I always start with that. That's my step one of any program that I do with them is starting them off with, I want you to, at the, be- at the beginning of every day, I want you to write three things that you are grateful for. And at the end of the day, I want you to write down three things that happened during the day that you were grateful for. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that when our mind goes unsupervised, we maybe at the end of my day, I usually reflect back and say, well, I didn't get that done and I still didn't get that done. So I'm kind of in a, in a feeling of discouragement, self-critical despair, criticism, judgment, heavy, it's a heavy emotion. And, um, so intentionally when I choose to list three things that I'm grateful for, I'm intentionally replacing that emotion with gratitude. And then waking up and starting with gratitude. And so to me, that's like reprogramming, intentionally reprogramming your unconscious patterns, your unsupervised patterns. And to me, that, that is the, you know, putting yourself at the, at the will and saying, no, Oh, look what I'm thinking right now. 
just yeah. doing those two things in one day is already uh, making you aware of when you're in a depressive pattern or you're spiraling in a downward mode and you can catch it and go, no, I know how to bring myself back up. I don't have to be a slave to whatever emotion has got its grip on me right now. Right. Well, step two, once I have them doing that is I always ask them to, you know, list things that they want to accomplish the next day, write them down. Don't just think about them, but write them down. And the reason I have them write them down is because then your mind doesn't try to remember them all night long. It's freed up. Yeah. Right. Your mind is freed up. And so you know, there's always going to be something that you wish you could have done, but don't focus on the negativity, focus on the things that you did do. Yeah. You're supposed to enjoy your life. It's not supposed to be a bunch of tasks that you check off every day. Right. So find the joy and focus on the joy because the more you focus on that, the more you'll find joy. But so Wendy, yeah. add, add, did I enjoy today on your daily task list? And if you did, you can check the box, but if not, <laughs> better go get joyful, better, better get joyful. <laughs> you know, I love to apply this to how we began this podcast today. And that me being a little bit unhinged is what actually how I labeled my post about, um, the general authority who, you know, spoke about not associating with the Judases because they say bad things about the church when they leave and how, and I watch my emotion and I'm, it's anger. I'm, I'm angry because I know how that feels. I know how it rips families apart. I know how it, um, it doesn't, it, it just makes a person who's gone through the courage and the the fortitude and the research and the effort to make the right choice and then leave. And then they're being labeled a Judas. I feel all of that. And I just want to punch that guy right in the face. I literally want to do that. And so I have to, what I do is I step back and I look and just say, people are going to see it. They're going to see it, but I still can be a voice. And if I get myself calm and cool, I'm actually grateful that I have a platform. I'm grateful that I have a voice. I'm grateful that I have developed the courage to speak my mind. <laughs> and I hope that I can be calm and cool while I express that. But it, it is a daily thing as to, do I even want to engage with this? <laughs> right. Why do I just let it go? <laughs> well, you know, I, I kind of feel the same way sometimes, Wendy, because, you know, like, I guess the Jehovah's Witnesses started to go back to their kingdom halls now. And so that's you know, it's all over the news feed in our group. And it's like, I want to say, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> who cares? <laughs> Why do Why I care still? <laughs> Why are you focusing on that? You know, do, are you going to go? Why, you know, uh, nobody wants to know that. Um, and, and that's the hardest thing um, with our group is when people, when people get out, and, and I'm sure you see it in your group too, Wendy, but they're so used to, paying attention to what the Jehovah's Witnesses say that they can't let go of that. Well, yeah. you have to stop focusing on what they're doing because you already know what they're going to do. You lived it. You know what they're going to do. Stop giving it power because no when you surprises. get five minutes of your time to think about it, they still are controlling your thoughts. Right. So let's not worry about what they're doing or what they say, because we've already decided that that's not true for us or we wouldn't have left, right? It's not true yeah. for us. So what they say or what they label us as, or 
what they're doing should be of no concern to us and it shouldn't really affect us anymore because you know Rodney uses the thing about you know I graduated from high school and I moved on you know I don't identify myself with that high school when I'm 40 years old you know you you don't identify yourself with that anymore you don't care what's happening at the high school anymore and you're not attending assemblies and getting updates on what happened and banned this today and (laughs) you know unless you have a child going to the same school that you went to you probably don't think about you know, what's happening at high school. Uh, you don't watch videos about what they're doing. You know, you, you just don't subscribe to it. You don't give it any weight. Um, so let's not give that any more power than it needs to have over us. And once you can do that, it doesn't matter what they call you or, you know, I used to hate that they were calling me an apostate. And now it's like, yes, I can wear that scarlet my letter badge. A with, you know, that's my badge of honor now. I have a scarlet letter A that doesn't mean the same thing as the scarlet letter A that we read about. But, you know, it's like, I don't care that I'm in a past state. You know, I, I don't care what they call me because that's their label. It's not my label. It's their label. Right. And you know yourself and you've taught yourself and you've loved yourself and you trust yourself and you've accepted yourself. And so you you don't put any more weight onto what they think. But I see what it does to other people who are new to leading, right? And that that's where my heart's drawn to that. And I, you know, I see how it rips people's lives apart. And I remember what it was like. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of compassion for those people. And I get angry that other human beings are still trying to do this to other human beings and really trying to enslave them in fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like that either. Um, but that's why we're here, Wendy. That's our job. That's what we do is we're holding the light for them and we're holding the space for them so that they can work through it and they can eventually get to a place where it's not true for them either. Yeah, as, as I've been listening to the two of you talk about this, I, I mentioned earlier that, that I've been working with this client who can't feel love or, or is suspicious of love. And right. I, I know, or I, I suspect as she was listening to this, that she would say, okay, yeah, this is, this is one of the things I don't like about these conversations about love is because you can see that there's definitely harm that's being done by this Mormon leader to other people. You mentioned it, Wendy, you know, they have this attitude and then that has this ripple effect that families are being ripped apart. And you're just saying, just ignore it. Just bury your head in the sand. Just, just leave. That's what this client would say, I think, and has said similar things. And so then my question is, well, what do you want to do? What, what do you think is the action? Oh, well, we need to take the church down. We need to get that. Like we need to get this person away from the microphone on general conference, or we need to change their mind. We need to have them say different things. It's like, you know, that's not, you can't do that. But, but what I'm hearing the two of you both saying is holding the light for the people that have been the victims of this and to say, if you want to make the change where this isn't quite so painful anymore, you can, but it's not changing the other person. It's looking inside yourself. It, it's realizing this connection between the heart and the mind. And yeah, you have these very painful emotions of being rejected by people that you love and that love you. And now they're saying, we're going to shun you because you're a Judas and this, and that's painful. What can you do in that 
situation. And it's not just burying your head in the sand and saying, I'm not going to do anything about it. It's really going to the heart of the matter with the people that need it the most. Once you get to that place, like you said, Cindy, you've got to want to change. You've got to be in that place where you recognize I'm the one that is continuing to re-traumatize myself with these kinds of messages because I, I still have those old emotions attached to these kinds of stories. And I haven't done what I need to do internally to make those changes, to create more peace. Not that the pain ever goes away completely, but to create more peace within myself. And then it's like, I'm taking the oxygen mask off in the airplane. <laughs> I'm putting it on me. Then I can help the people around me better. Exactly. But, yeah. Exactly. Well, I think it's our, our attempt, our, I think it's kind of a, maybe a programmed or a conditioned response to want to control our environment to make us yeah. happier. And so once we learn that, our, when our efforts are turned inward to be in more control of ourselves, that's that, that our inner environment is. that we yes. weren't, we weren't raised to know how important that is and how much impact we actually do have on that. Exactly. Still yeah. something that keeps us so automatic going through these programs that we don't even know that we created right yeah right and the more you learn about yourself and and sit in that quiet space and just listen to that inner knowing from your heart yeah you know and, and you realize that you don't control anyone else but yourself mm. yeah you can't what, it's an illusion all the us rest of it is an illusion we can attempt to try and control that external yeah. environment but when we try to that's when we get exhausted and we push people away. And we, I think the only reason we want to try to control our external environment is because we're afraid. Yes. And just learning that we need to let go of expectations of others, you know, expectations, because with every expectation, there is an emotion tied to it. Mm -hmm. And so when you learn how to let go of expectations and just accept what is, and find a way, um, you know, if you live in the present moment, and I think it's Joe Dispenza that says this, right? It's like, um, if, if you're not living in the present moment, you're either living in the past, which is over, and you can't control it, or you're living in the future, which hasn't happened yet. So if you stay in the present moment, and you have no expectations, then it's a lot easier to be in a state of acceptance. I like that. I also think there's one more place that we kind of tend to hang out and that is in other people's lives. Yes. Yes. I'm just stay in our lane. (laughs) We either want, you know, we're either trying to live through them or trying to control them and either works. Right. Right. So So true. But um, I will let you know that um, I'm writing a new book. I've started the book. Um, And tentatively the title is living between the beats. Mm. I love it. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, a book that talks about living from the heart. Um, I hope to use that with not only individuals, but um, since I have 35 years of corporate experience, I would love to use that to enhance the leadership development and team building techniques that I had already been using. And um my heart is with first responders since my soon to be husband is a firefighter and paramedic for the U S Navy. Mm. Um, I want to use that to help 
first responders stay present and safe and coherent. So um, that's a perfect, I'll say that's a perfect example, Cindy, you woke up, you grew up, (laughs) you cleaned up, and now you're just showing up, you're just making an impact. I love it. I love how you demonstrate what's possible. Thanks, Wendy. I think you do the same thing, both you and Glenn. Glenn, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, nice um, to meet you too, Cindy. Thank you. I just feel a connection to both of you. You know, I, I connected with Wendy instantaneously when I met her. Um, her mm. story about her <laughs> dragonflies is the story I used to tell about butterflies, only mm. it's different for insects. <laughs> but, you know, I just feel a kinship to both of you. And I feel so grateful to have been part of your podcast and that you invited me to come and speak. Um, oh, we'll you probably need to not, have again. Yeah, you think you think <laughs> this is it? We're not done with you. <laughs> oh, I would love to come back as many times as you'd like to have. Like to have. I really and surrender to the flow of love that will heal me. Thank you for listening to the Empowered Former LDS podcast. Now, if you found today's episode interesting or valuable in any way, please share it with someone that you care about. You can also give us a five-star rating and write a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use. You can find Wendy and Glenn at the Empowered Former LDS group on Facebook, 3.1 thousand members strong, where you can also discuss this episode with others And sign up yourself to share your own story and thoughts about empowerment on this podcast. Thanks again for listening. And remember, wherever you're at, whatever is going on, you got this.